Welcome to Get Up in the Cool, old-time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. This week's friends are Christina Gaddy and Pete Ross. We recorded at their home about a month ago when I was in town to play the Baltimore Square Dance. A few notes about this episode. I'm playing guitar because it made the most sense for Pete to play banjo in this one. Also, I added the explicit tag to the episode description because there's some coarse language used in a moment of pure, earnest enthusiasm. I hope you don't mind. Make sure to stick around afterwards and I'll tell you how to keep up with all the cool stuff Christina and Pete are doing and I'll let you know how to get exclusive bonus content for supporting Get Up in the Cool. But first, here's my interview and jam with Christina Gaddy and Pete Ross. Enjoy. Fiddlesticks. Yeah. I have a hard time distinguishing how fast it's going to be. That was hot. <laughs> you can listen to my hardcore punk records. And get that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well. Christina Gaddy and yes. Pete Ross. Yeah, welcome to Get Up in the Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. Thanks for having me in your house this yeah. weekend. Yeah, yeah it's delightful. You have really nice cats. Uh, debatable. Well. They were nice to me. Two out of three. They're friendly. <laughs> And they weren't too nice. My cat is too nice, and uh, he like he's starved for attention because we have a kid and we don't pay attention. To him. <laughs> so he, he like whenever we have a guest, he'll just like scratch, like just long scratches down their legs, like while they're sitting, and it's awful. But does that a little bit if he wants to get picked up? He did that a very like acute amount. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, push the boundaries of cute. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. I have a lot of questions to ask you guys, uh, but I think first I want to ask you, Christina, how you got into playing fiddle and playing old-time music. 
Um, so I grew up playing classical uh-huh. violin, took lessons. Did you do Suzuki? Um, I did Suzuki for a little while at uh-huh. the very beginning. Um, How old were you when you started? I started Suzuki originally when I was like three, but yeah. that was it was a little bit failed. So then I started again when I was five. So I played for like when I was three for like a little while, um, and then stopped. And then took up lessons again. Played in school orchestras, the whole deal. Um, but my mom is from Sweden, so I started playing some Swedish folk oh, music. Yeah. Um, with her and then from there I got into American traditional music um, eventually found myself in Elkins, West Virginia mm. with a house full of old time musicians um, Wait, back up to your mom real quick You said you played with her? Mm-hmm, and what yeah did she, What did she play? So she plays flute and recorder Oh, cool um, Yeah, so we had like a little Swedish folk music group so it was fiddle um, a very interesting instrument called a key fiddle um is it like a hurdy-gurdy? Kind of, yeah. Okay, yeah, it's got cool. a similar similar type of thing going on. And, um, yeah, I played, you know, at, like, various Swedish functions around the Washington, D.C. area. Yeah. Um, which was fun. Wait, and, give me an example of a Swedish function. Oh, like, we've played at the uh, embassy, at the ambassador's residence, you know? Very <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, awesome. Yeah, the Swedish church or... <coughs> Weddings, or there was like a Swedish antique shop that was having an event. And so you guys were play. like, Swedes liked you and the way that you played. Or American Swedes, at least. Okay, American <laughs> Swedes, okay. Because I was going to say, you played for the ambassador. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, and, and my parents still play with um, a group in D.C. that plays Swedish uh, folk music. So they go around and they still awesome. play it. You know, they had like a Swedish National Day event. Um, Your at the beginning of June, and which they have a different. Do they have a different set? That's like the Swedish stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they play with, and they were just at a Swedish like folk music camp for a week, um, uh-huh. playing in, in, in Sweden. Sweden yeah. yeah, learning from a bunch of um, <coughs> musicians over there. That was, cool parents. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so they're the ones who like playing violin when I was growing up was not really an option. It was like this is you're going to do this. Yeah, were you <laughs> when it you say it wasn't an option. Would you have chosen? No, I mean, you know, I, t- I told... Now I have some, you know, um, violin and fiddle students here in Baltimore and, like, you know, little kids. It's always hard to get them to practice. And I basically am very open with when I was your age, I didn't want to practice either. Yeah. And at one point I had a little cassette recorder in my room and I recorded <laughs> myself practicing. Yeah. And then I closed my door and, like, played it back so that my mom would think I was practicing. <laughs> That's um, amazing. That's so smart. <laughs> yeah. So kids, kids take note. Um, but then once I was in high school and, like, playing in orchestras, then it was fun. Then it was actually a thing that because I... Because then used. you're, like, with peers yeah. and stuff. Yeah, then As it opposed was, to yeah. just playing mom and, mom and dad's music. Yeah, or just in your by yourself, like, and going to your music lesson or whatever, so... Right, right, right. Um... And then, of course, once I got to be an adult and was interested in playing, um, you know, traditional forms of music, I was like, oh, well, now it's really great to have that musical background um, yeah. and actually be able to play an instrument and then just transfer the style that you're playing. Did you did you start playing old-time in Elkins? Yeah, basically. Okay, cool. um, I, had, I have an aunt who's a really um, great bluegrass banjo player, so I had been, 
you know, messing around with some bluegrass tunes with her, but not very seriously at all. Um, and like our family went to Galax a couple of times when I was in mm-hmm. high school. So I got to see like that bluegrass scene. Um, but when I moved to Elkins was really when I started playing old time. Um, mostly at the urging of a one Kevin Chesser who was like <laughs> playing banjo on the couch when I got home. And he was just like, get out your fiddle. Come on, yeah, play yeah. something. Play Like, let's do this tune. Let's play this. Um, so it was, yeah, in a community of people who are really into playing and interested in playing so is that like the main style that you play these days playing old time yeah oh yeah for do sure. you do you ever play pull out that swedish stuff yeah sometimes yeah okay. yeah yeah cool. family weddings yes at family yeah. weddings and then i'm yeah. like <laughs> pete play this swedish tune he's like i can't do that rhythm on the banjo that doesn't yeah. well, work one tune you all pull out was the rhythm was really weird like yeah i couldn't figure out they do some like really irregular stuff right yeah 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 i I was in one swedish jam on the periphery at clifftop once a couple years ago and i was like hope i'm not pissing people off (laughs) like i like this is more fun to listen yeah i think i got more out of it than maybe they did for me well and i also find that at least you know in sweden people who are playing um swedish traditional music they're they're not as like um they're they have a much broader idea. So my my parents were just at this group, and I was talking to my mom. She's like, oh, and you remember, like, Thomas, he's there, and he plays the saxophone. And he's playing the saxophone yeah. in these jams. Or clarinet, or, like, or cello, or all of these instruments where, like, sometimes I think if you were at a jam at Clifftop and somebody rolled up with a saxophone... It ha- it's happened You'd to be me. like, <laughs> but, whoa, yeah. what are you doing? Yeah. You know, rather than being like, oh, wow, cool, they can add something really interesting. Right. Um, well, that's your parents' personality whatever let's go for it that's cool yeah that's true that's true so but i think there's a general attitude of that like at that music camp it's not like oh you have to play violin or it's not super um, strict and narrow yeah basically fiddle or whatever you know and yeah. there's also a you know emerging tradition there of um flute players uh mainly you know coming kind of from the irish tradition of using flute in traditional music and they do that in sweden too so Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, when was that when you started playing old time? When you moved to Elkins? Yeah, it was in 2009. 2009. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And then I lived in Elkins for a little while. Um, And, yeah, I got really, really into old time music there. And was playing and taking some lessons from our friend Andy Fitzgibbon. Um, And, you know, did a week at Augusta. Um... Because that was easy when you're living there, yeah. and you know, going to Clifftop, going to festivals, yeah. um, Glenville in in West Virginia, the West Virginia State Folk Festival, and yeah, just playing all types of things, all types, you know, just getting really immersed in the experience. So that was fun. And then eventually, I met Pete <laughs> at Clifftop, right? At yep. Clifftop, yep. Yeah. Yep. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, but we had a bunch of mutual friends in common, so it was pretty funny. It's funny it took as long as it did for us to serve. Yeah, I was like, why weren't why weren't you at Andy's birthday party that year? Oh, why weren't you yeah. at you know yeah. this wedding or why weren't you at that yeah. thing? So could have gotten yeah. a head start, but at least yeah. you figured it, it out. out. Yeah, or I would have <laughs> thought that you were a never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, like who's that drunk dude? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the timing was right. Yeah, some of those years I would have had. I feel that. Yeah, yeah. Me, uh, yeah. So you're an author, you're a writer, 
and you're very interested in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any aspect of like old time music being attractive to you? Like that is it interesting just because of the music, or like are you attracted to it also because of the history behind it? Like. Um, that's a really good question. So the reason I was living in West Virginia was to work in museums and historical societies through the AmeriCorps program. Um, and so... I didn't know that they offered that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The Appalachian Forest Heritage Area, Mm. which is based in Elkins, had like, you know, basically positions like, here's a historical society that needs somebody to help with their archiving, or here's a museum that needs somebody to help with whatever. Um... So, so that was that, and they do that. There's, there's that, yeah, exists around the country. So, AmeriCorps has a very diverse programming. Um, but yeah, so I, I moved there for that, and kind of immediately became interested in the history of that area, and you know, met Jerry Milnes, who was still working as um, the folk life coordinator I think was his position Mm. at Augusta um he since retired but you know he's done a lot of research into um traditional music in the area and I do think that you know the historical aspect of it realizing how what that history means is interesting um and one of the reasons I especially like learning from Andy is because he was like here's a bunch of old recordings go listen to them tell me which ones appeal to you and yeah. you want to learn. Um, and so from the very beginning, my idea of learning tunes is you listen to an old recording and you learn it from that. Um, As opposed to like a jam setting. Or... Opposed to a jam setting. or I mean, I'm not saying I haven't learned yeah. tunes from jams, but as opposed to a jam setting or like listening modern, to a, a contemporary yeah, yeah. or, you know. Sure. I'm not saying don't find people playing on YouTube, but for, for me, it's just, it's a lot... Um, more compelling to listen to the original recordings and, and learn off that. Even if you're not like learning it note for note, you know, getting that feeling of what that person was um, producing. Yeah. So that history interested me. And then, you know, the deeper you get into it, the deeper the rabbit hole goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the one of the things was Okay, I grew up in Kensington, Maryland, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C. There's, you know, uh, growing up there, you just think this is like amalgamated suburbs. There's not culture culture and interesting (laughs) things here. And Pete was the first one who told me about um, a black fiddler who lived in a um, community that's like three quarters of a mile from where I grew up. It's called Kengar. It's a historically black community founded in 1911 when the first plots of land were built. Um, and he knew of these recordings from Mike, Mike Seeger having, having gone and like was trying to like find a banjo player, didn't find a banjo player, found a fiddler, took a bunch of recordings. And, you know, at that time it was much more rural um, than it is today. And so it's like, yeah, there's... There's this interesting history of American traditional music that exists all over if we just look for it and know where to look. And, like, yeah. a lot of people are like, oh, it's Appalachian music or, you know, it's Southern music. And it's really, like, there are interesting... There's interesting traditional music that comes out of, you know, an American fiddle banjo tradition. Yeah. In a lot of places in the yeah, country. Yeah. It's not just, you know, right. That's right. in... 
in Appalachia. Right. In so. a lot of ways, when you get into the history, like you're right, you realize how narrow the perspective can be. Like, people have like people code the the music a very specific way. And right. And even, right. I mean, you start realizing like the, with the with the with the common notion of what's traditional, quote unquote, yeah. doesn't necessarily apply to a lot of the stuff in this really the the old time repertoire. I mean, now we we kind of realize it does. It's just like yeah. it, going by a real strict notion of what's traditional music. Yeah, we we have to expand on that to really continue to include a lot of the stuff in the old time canon. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. yeah. there's like traditional actual folk music, and then there's traditional pop music. Right. <laughs> yeah. Know? Stuff that's like, been in the repertoire so long. It's like, well, it may as well be traditional, even though. Some guy in New York wrote this yeah. in the 1850s or whatever. Some song that was like on the radio that someone turned into a fiddle tune or right. something. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let's play another tune. What? what let's play that. Let's play the Will Adams tune. Yeah. Um, and some of these are the Tiger Dog Sally Gal is probably the most well known of Will Adams's tunes, yeah. which is on a, a Mike Seeger recording. But I think he Mike did once one session with him, and that's it. That's all the yeah. recordings there are. If you if you know the right people, <laughs> you can get the recordings. But they are held at the two of the tracks are on Mike Seeger's Close to Home mm-hmm. CD, and there's maybe a dozen or more, two dozen or two other songs that are just getting passed around. But they are also at the University of North Carolina library for anybody that wants to go and there's there's other recordings there too of like a guitar player that was um also from from ken or Mm. not from ken gar but from sandy springs sandy spring maryland yeah a little ways down the road yeah but they played together and his band he never found his banjo players really set him on that first hunt to his first recordings yeah so it's william adams it's adams with an s at the end Uh uh-huh so the recording was taken down as will adam but if you go, so I went, so because I was living in Kensington with my parents at the time that I was finding all this out, I went to the Kensington Historical Society and they have um, a little history of Kengar that a couple people wrote. And if you go into, um, Kengar is a very small community centered around um, two African-American churches. And it was established as an African-American community outside of D.C. with certain sort of protective boundaries, oh. right? There's one road in, one road out, huh. just as, I don't know, shelter. Yeah. Yeah. And Mike's story is when Mike met his banjo player, Mike was hanging around at one of the horse stables in, in um, Rock Creek Rock Park, Park in, within D.C. Had, you know, he's a young folky, early 50s, and he's got his banjo with him, and there's a bunch of the guys who work the stables, African-American guys. One guy looks at him with his band and says, so, can you play that thing? And Mike's like, yeah, a little bit. And the guy's like, let me see it. And, you know, proceeds to blow Mike's mind. Yeah. And Mike's like, all right, I gotta, I gotta come find your record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, well, come to this neighborhood, ask for Will Adams. You know, no, no, he... Fiddler. Oh, okay. And Mike goes into the... And, and Mike goes, you know, whatever, a couple weeks later or something, goes in there with his, with a with a recording device and walks into that neighborhood and, and says like, Hey, can you drink me to Will Adams? And, and no, the woman in the neighborhood says to him, Oh, do you mean Mr. William Adams? 
well, he lives, you know, at this address. Yeah. And, and, and then there was also some people who didn't want to talk to him. Huh. You know, were like, what are you doing here? Why right. are you in here? This yeah. is our community. Like, yeah. and we're a little bit hesitant to show him. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, the Adams family was one of the first ones to um, buy a plot of land from the church, um, which they have... You know, records of Ancestry.com. You can yeah. go and look at the... And you found his parents' history, too, and they were also... They were born in Maryland. Marylanders yeah, they were born well. in Maryland. So, um... So the, uh... Who wrote down Will Adam, then? Was that Mike? That was Mike. So Mike incorrectly put his mm-hmm. name down. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Plot thickens. Yeah. This happens all the time on this show where I'm just like, okay, someone said that this is actually a correction, and then I find... I talk to someone else, and they're like, no, good... It's actually the other way around. Like someone yeah. was telling me that calico tuning wasn't a, wasn't a. They, no one called it calico tuning until like very recently. And then like uh, I found a recording of um, of uh, Marcus, I think Marcus Martin, Martin saying calico, calico tuning. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, well, yeah. what do you, how do you explain this? Yeah. Yeah. Way back yeah. when and he's like, oh, you got me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. there's all of these yeah. And I think misinformation out there. Yeah, and I think a lot of times it's it's you know. It, I think it's yeah it's misinformation but a lot of times it's because it's a tradition so it's people talking and people yeah. saying things and you know recently with some other stuff that we were doing it's like it's really important to get the spelling of things because yeah. Yeah. the way that words are pronounced or the yeah. sounds that certain letters make can you know be right. different depending on yeah. um, language language and, and yeah. accents and vernacular language meaning and, yeah which language? Yeah. English versus Dutch versus yeah. French. Or yeah, versus, or, yeah. 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 Okay, let's play this too. Yeah. <laughs> this is the poor, poor black sheep? No, no. No, this is... Um, Just you guys are going to do butterfly flip. We're going to do butterfly, butterfly flip, flip, which was one flip of... Flip or flip? Flip. 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 Okay. Um, F-L-I-P. Yeah, I never heard this um, one before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's on that... Um, one of the ones that Mike got from uh, William Adams. Yeah. And, um, yeah.
cool. Yeah. That's such a pretty, delicate tune. Yeah. It's awesome. It is. I think you could probably speed it up and throw it down a little bit or well, something. Well, I like that you played it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's a nice, nice Mike, drum pace. Mike used to say when he, he brought the fiddle to that recording session, and it was basically something that had basically been a trashed fiddle that he had glued back together. So probably affected the performance yeah. but the guy didn't yeah. I don't think he had his own fiddle anymore. huh yeah is that is that t- is that recording like publicly available of him playing that so or it's like, pu- it's publicly available in that you can go to the UNC library and get it yeah yeah or you can talk to the right people yeah right <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wink, wink. around um, the, we've had a problem getting his we haven't tried really hard getting his guitar players recordings because I think the same reel they're on is actually on with some pretty big bluegrass acts or something so they have you have to go through a process to get access to contracted material yeah. it's all stuff Mike recorded oh. is that I thought that was a story I may not have that right I don't know if that's yeah, and that's one reason I, we, haven't, we haven't heard his guitar player stuff yeah. yet. and then the first conversation I had with Mike was like I know you recorded Will Adams did you ever record his banjo players from Kengar there and and this is like whatever 50 years later yeah and Mike's like I looked for him but no I never found him. He was like still pained. Like, uh, yeah, found him. Found him to record him. <laughs> like some sort of Pokemon master or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mike Seeger did try to catch them all. It's yeah. true. Yeah. Right. It's great. <laughs> so, how did you start uh, playing old time music, Pete? Uh, I was working at a record store in the 80s, and I heard old time music by chance. Yeah. And uh, What were you listening to before then? I was a punk kid in the DC punk scene. Yeah, you know, starting. Did you play punk? Yeah, I played guitar and stuff in bands. Cool. And uh, I got a, you know, I've been hanging out in this record store since like 1980 or something, and just became like a friend of the store, and eventually got a job there yeah. because I was like a music hound before I even became sort of a searcher for old time music history. Yeah. And um, by the end of the 80s, I was I didn't really care for the turns that the punk scene had taken and was just kind of bored with it or just put off by some of the some of it and so my ears were open and also this was a store an independent record store that just had deep catalog of everything yeah I mean the top 40 stuff was like the smallest portion yeah yeah probably kept the doors open but really more important to the this is like the most 80s story I've ever heard (laughs) it's amazing yeah there's some high fidelity aspects yeah but yeah the more important more important the owner was like the giant wall of jazz records or the old time music stuff and I didn't really know that you know my boss the guy who owned the store Joe was like he used to hang out with like the Stonemans and stuff like that just because like he was just into every every kind of music he considered the tr- part of the true vine, you know, the, the real sure. root stuff. Sure. Thus, he was like cool with the punk stuff because he's like, this is the kids doing something for themselves. It's right on. It's cool. Yeah. But uh, but it was also well stocked with old time records. Mm-hmm. And I heard that Altamont record in 1989 yeah. with Black String Bands one. I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. Yeah. Just by you know, I put it on totally by chance when the store was crowded. It was sitting there. It was in a used bin, even though it was a brand new record because also independent record stores at the time. If a, if a demo copy came in, it went right out for sale. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I just grabbed it because I knew, like, all right, I can find something reliable in, like, the blues section yeah. that won't be annoying. Right? Yeah. I know it'll be basically good even if I can't be selective. Yeah. And it turned out it was that record misfiled. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I was mostly trying to write up 
check out customers and like three tracks sounds like this is awesome yeah and uh and you know basically you know i knew the customers that came in who were sort of like 78 rpm collectors and stuff like that and you know i played it for one of them he's like oh yeah this is pretty great and then you know whatever a couple weeks later he comes back in he's like so pete you still listen to that country music yeah and i was like is that what that is yeah you know i really (laughs) didn't know how to classify it yeah and and then another one of those guys was like, well, if you're getting into this stuff, you should go down to Galax in a few weeks. Yeah. And that was that. You know, I bought a banjo at Galax from IQ Creed. And that's, you know, that's how I started playing old-time banjo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So you you had never heard, that was the only record you had heard. And then you yeah. went I mean, to Galax, just like sort of on a whim. Yeah. Well, by the time by the time I went to Galax, you know, I was there in the record store. And I yeah. had the guidance of these guys who knew this stuff really well. And so, you know, by the time I went to Galax, I had like Uncle Dave making records and sure. stuff like that. But I hadn't, I mean, I was sort of navigating the stuff totally solo with help right. from these guys. I, you know, I, I didn't, I hadn't really realized that, you know, it was pretty close to DC that there was a pretty strong old time scene still. I just hadn't connected with it at all. Yeah. Um, so I did have some background, but you know, I think I saw an old time band once years before this because my first job was at the parks department. We had like a harvest festival one year. Right. And there was a bunch of sort of old hippie guys playing stuff yeah. in the early '80s, and uh, I thought it was interesting, but it didn't compel me to pursue it. But um, but yeah, aside from that, when I went to Galax that first time it was the first time I ever like laid eyes on people playing this stuff. Yeah. I love this uh, punk to old time like pipeline. Like it's, it's, I hear it over and over and over again. There's something about yeah. it that's like people are into punk music, and then they're like, "Oh, actually, this is like more punk <laughs> and still punk." <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that sort of that hunt for the sort of genuine, uncorrupted by marketplace, yeah, uh, democratic music, you know, drives interest in either. Now, sometimes I'm like. Now that we've sort of more thoroughly explored the history of old time music, sometimes I'm like, I think punk got it better. Like as far as like, because it set itself, it set itself aside, and then sort of had bylaws nearly right, and then so in a way it's ended up being decided being derived from like the commercial form of rock and roll. Right. Since that point, it's sort of those bylaws have kept it more strictly interesting. You know, (laughs) you know pure if you want I mean I, I sort of I don't like these terms anymore because I think it's a distortion of what music is right but like now we realize like again a, a form I don't like a, a word I don't like like old time music is has all sorts of corrupting influences that yeah. are not really there for I guess like it, it's really easy and tempting to uh, project authenticity on it yeah, and, and a specific idea of what it means to be authentic. Yeah. And like you said, corruption isn't necessarily the best word. To, yeah. yeah, corruption fits what it's 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 a corruption if you have this really narrow idea of what you want it to be. Yeah, but once you let go of that, it sort of doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, How did you start making banjos? How long have you been doing this? I started making banjos pretty much right after that time I went to Galax. Did you, wait, so the banjo that you bought, yeah. did, were you like, I, did you start learning on it and then you were like, I want to get a new banjo, I might as well just make one? No, no, that okay. wasn't it. What it was was, 
So another thing about having that um, Ultimod, the Black String Bands record, be the, the first thing I heard is, so right off the bat, it sort of put on its head my notions of who this music was yep. performed by. Yep. Right? I thought it was just like the whitest music ever, and here are these black guys making really compelling music with yeah. it. So the curiosity set in, and I started exploring um, the history of it, like how how is this? What is the story behind here? And, and eventually I got really back into the origins of it, and was like, well, what, you know, I found Dean Epstein's book, um, Sinful Tunes and Spirituals, which really documents the, uh, the early history of the banjo well. And I'm like, well, and by then I'd already realized like, okay, minstrelsy is this thing that sort of blew up American popular music. Yeah. And it's really central to the formation of our sort of pop culture identity in America. Yeah. And it's like the banjo is really central to that. So this thing that I found compelling just sort of in a visceral sense, actually trying to be kind of central to our identity as Americans and central to the formation of our culture as Americans. And now, so its origins are this instrument that was made strictly by African-Americans. And I'm like, all right, I got to hear one of these things. There's all this writing about it from the 1700s. Yeah. People are sort of, their minds are kind of blown by it or they're fascinated by it or sometimes they're dismissive of it, but they're still interested enough to document it in writing. Like, let's hear one. And I realized, like, at that point, it seemed like nothing had survived. Right. So I'm like... Nothing, like the physical Nothing banjos. physically. Yeah. No banjo had actually Didn't survived from that period. Yeah. yeah. The earliest ones are sort of the commercially produced ones starting in the 1840s. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to figure out how yeah. to make one. And I was in art school at the time. And there was a wood shop in the sculpture studio. So I just set out to make one then. So how I did could you, hear that historic How did you do that? Did you, were there schematics or whatever? Or like There's no schematics. I mean, I had some in, some books on like how to make a folk instrument. How, so I had some stuff like that. Yeah. And... Had I'm, you ever done woodworking before this? A little bit. My first job, starting as a volunteer before I was old enough to hold a job, was at the Parks Department, and there was yeah. a there was a a reconstructed 1830s farm. So I was already out there making shingles for the roofs of the farm buildings yeah. with hand tools, early early 19th century style tools and stuff. So. I wasn't like a skilled refined woodworker, but I also wasn't afraid of tools. Yeah. You know, for just a suburban kid or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, my parents were teachers, so we weren't we were doing work. We weren't, I wasn't learning that stuff at home, really. Yeah. Either. Um, so I had that. So I was, I was willing to jump in. Yeah. And I did. And I started between the early images and the early descriptions and sort of seeing the earliest banjos made by people of European descent, I, I got a sense of how simple they were and sort of, so another element was like reverse engineering those. Yeah. So I, 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 you know, there was no banjo to copy that I knew of yet. So I just took each of these elements to come up with, with a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And it, you know, I didn't nail it the first time. What, I came up with a playable instrument, which was really exciting, and that yeah, compelled yeah. me to keep working on it. What is the, like the style of banjo that you made? It was a gourd banjo, gourd body banjo, gourd body banjo. Yeah, this is like nineteen ninety one or ninety two. I can't. You got exactly. the gourd from a fall display. Yeah, so you know, I was living in New York, <laughs> in the in Manhattan, in the East Village, and you know, some this is like October of that whatever year it was, and uh, 
and like out front of like a flower shop they've got like the dried flower arrangements and then like the things that signify fall harvest festival and there was like a gourd sitting out there it yeah. was still green yeah it's like all right here here's one i think this is it at least and, yeah <laughs> and sort of you know took it back to my apartment yeah. and let it dry over that winter while i sort of drew out what i was going to do i mean i really didn't even know how to dry the thing I stuck in the oven for a while. I was like, uh, that's right. Like, I, there was really nothing to go by, you know. But it worked out. And I mean, you know, whatever. It's no internet. I, I you know, right. I had to drive, I had to like find a drum store in Manhattan somewhere that had like pieces of skin I could use. Yeah. And I didn't know where to find a decent piece of maple, you know. Did you use nylon strings or did you yeah. get gut? No, no, I used nylon. Have you ever messed with, with gut? Oh, yeah, I've used gut lots. I just, I'm going to, the one that's in the shop right now will get gut strings because it's awesome. a museum piece. Yeah. Um, I sort of like gut better than nylon, but gut's gotten really expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Real expensive. It was, it was, when I started out, it was, there was a good supplier in the States, but she's retired and now I got to, I mean, banjo players not, you, people ask about gut, banjo players not used to paying a hundred bucks for a set of strings. Right, 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 right. So I'm like, I can, I can do this for you, but yeah, it's, you know, it's going to add a lot. Uh, when I recorded Brad yesterday, he played one of the tunes on one of your banjos. Oh, cool! The, the Gord one. Yeah. He's really run with it. I, I love the way he's been doing with it. Yeah, I mean, he sounds. He like really knows his way around it. Like most most of the yeah. time, when I hear people play Gord banjos, like they kind of like stay pretty close to the nut, and right. you know, and the intonation's always like, you know, well, I I. I never mind it because I'm like, oh, I'm listening to a you know fretless chord instrument. Like I'm gonna have a different set of expectations yeah. for what. To, but he just sounds like he's just like, I mean, it's it has all the qualities it. of yeah. yeah but it's is he has like perfect intonation on this thing. Yeah. <laughs> he's just well, so good. unlike the banjo, like so what Brad played is not like a strict historic recreation. Yeah, you know, it's like sort of an 1840s neck on a gourd. Yeah, That's what a lot of people want. I mean, those 1840s necks look great, but this is something. That was probably first made here in Baltimore by a guy, by a German immigrant. Yeah. Um, but since since it's not a strict historic recreation, I also allow myself to do things on those models that like neck angle. So as low yeah. action all the way up the neck, you could hit those notes yeah. all the way to the end of the scale, 19th fret, 22nd fret, whatever. Yeah. So that helps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do you want to play some banjos for us? Yeah, maybe? I guess so. Awesome. All right, so what are you going to... Well, what are you playing first? Um, this is another sort of modern take on... We can talk about this a little afterwards. On a gourd banjo, it's stemming from... Right after I finished college, I pressed with Scott Didlake in Mississippi, who I sort of discovered was also making gourd banjos. And um, so it's it's coming from the direction he sent me on with that apprenticeship and then I've continued to modify it influenced by my own aesthetics the study of African contemporary African instruments things like that what are you going to play? I'm going to play a song without a title but it was a transcription of a black guy's playing at around 
Are you doing like a minstrel stroke there? Is that what it's called? A when little you, bit. When you break the, the form? Duh. Yeah. It's not really, I mean, it but is. If you do like do da, do da, like. It's syncopated. Yeah. So this. Right. It's a little, so it's a 16th note, 8th note, 16th note. Right. But you, so you do a downstroke on like the other beat. It's it's broken up into it's not straight like eighth note to sixteenth note yeah. right right like all time right so you end up with thumb notes on the beat as opposed to after the beat yeah. and things like that right if we get into the other one I can show some more of that sort of typical minstrel yeah. stuff but this is I mean two things that's interesting about this the recording. The transcription is like it's a great straight. This is this black guy I saw play, right. and I wrote it down, which is pretty scarce, you know, right. in the nineteenth century. And it lays out his technique. And one of the things he does is he rate the standard tuning. Then was what we call now classic C, G, C, G, um, B, D, except down two steps. But in this one, he says the guy says, "I'm gonna now let me throw this banjo out of tune," and he raises the second string a half steps, which makes it double C. Yeah. Our old time tuning. Yeah. And he also, and this I didn't get when I just played it because I'm not that sharp at this, which was, he plays a two finger up picking. Okay. Too. So, um, I don't know how much you want to get into this, but. No, please. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, when people start exploring the sort of minstrel era stuff, there was some resistance um, from people in the old time scene were like, no, 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 we are folk music. We're not this pop music from the 19th century. And people didn't like it. Right. Now, I'm not, I, I think, yes, part of that repertoire that were pop songs in the 19th century are part of the old time repertoire too. But what's sort of, some people have to, I think, taken it too far and said it's, it's entirely from, from minstrelsy. You know, that's why white people play banjo. Right, right, right. That, that's it. And, um, but here's a case of like here's this guy's this African American guy's playing documented really thoroughly and he's like he's playing in double C, he's using two finger up picking, something that never appears anywhere else yeah. amongst the playing of like minstrel era players, but is shared by this black guy early on and rural white players. Yeah. So there's, there's clearly some lineage there. Yeah. Know, some connection there. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What's uh did you have anything else on this banjo, or do you want to bring out the other one? Do you want to just explain briefly if people are only listening, like oh yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, well, you tell me. Okay, so there, I'm only playing on three long strings, one short string. Yeah. All the earliest. Well, not all of them. The most. Bef- well, go ahead, Christine. So, well, I think you you said when you started in '92, '93, even up to the point where you were apprenticing with Scott, uh-huh. no. Gord, you know, you only ever had images right. of Gord banjos. Right. And then eventually one was discovered. Well, it was it was known. It took me a while to find out about the one that had been collected in Suriname in the 1770s. It was in an exhibit at MIT, and I eventually got the catalog of that exhibit. Right. And it has three, like this banjo, has three long strings and the thumb string. Yeah. And um, and the, with the Dean Epstein book we mentioned before, she goes through and like lays out all the accounts of the banjo she found when she wrote the book mm. that are you know prior to the Civil War, and 
the string number is all over the place, uh -huh. but that seems like the most common one is four strings. Yeah. And Thomas Jefferson talks about the banjo as being a four string instrument. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess yeah, I guess he would he would know, wouldn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He lays out the tuning too, but he doesn't really say one of the strings is shorter than the rest, so yeah. it, there's been a lot of interpretation sure. attempts to interpret that. Yeah. So And then in two thousand five the Well I should say also I I also examined when I was still in New York I examined there's a gourd banjo at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Mm. And I'd made a few before I, I knew it was there. I'd seen one picture of it and I went and examined it. You know, I wrote him a letter, too, and they're like, "Yeah, come check it out." And I realized pretty quickly, it's like, "All right, this is a, it's an early banjo neck, but it's like this was a banjo neck made by this guy William Boucher in Baltimore that somebody with, which had a wooden rim originally, and then mm. somebody else came along and stuck a board on it, kind of roughly." Oh, interesting. So I was like, mm, "Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> it tells us a little bit, maybe, about the historic condition of the instrument, but it's not a hundred percent winner." Yeah, and then you want to. I was just going to say, and then in 2005, you've, there's the... 2003. But, 2003, but. there's the Haiti Bonza that's in a collection in Europe, which is okay. collected in Haiti. Also, three strings, one short string. Yeah, three long. And it's really similar to the banjo in the painting, The Old Plantation from South Carolina, mm. which, I mean, I was stunned when it turned up and, you know, Friend, another friend excited about this history sent me the picture. I'm like, holy shit, that looks just like the whole thing. It's, it's, yeah, that's it. Like, it's yeah. clearly part of the same tradition. And he's just, you know, I was, I mean, one of the reasons that I started making bands was because it just drove me nuts. I couldn't see one of the things yeah. for the whole taste. And then, mm -hmm. and then, like, I never thought I would see one. And there it is. It's like, and not only is it there, but it's like, it just, it fits right into the history that we had. So it was sort of mind blowing. You know? So you two just got back from Suriname. Yeah. We did, yeah. Um, because you saw that banjo in Amsterdam, right? So, so Pete examined the, the that first one that's from the 1770s. One of the reasons that you know it is it, it, separate from the short strings and and whatever, it's called the Creole Banya. That's B A N I A. Yeah. Um, and so you see these accounts. It's like banjo, banjar, banya, banya. Banyo. Yeah, we should say know. again. This is one that was collected in the in Suriname in the 1770s, yeah. and people knew about it for knew about it for a long time. And the the one that just turned up in 2003 is a different one. That one's called the ha the Haiti. Well, we're not. It's, it's in French, but it says something to the effect of "This is the bonza, the in instrument played by the Negroes in Haiti." Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, yeah, those are yeah. Suddenly we had two. Yeah, yeah. So suddenly there were two, and then um, I even, traveled to see it. I made a couple banjos for this exhibit in Brussels. They they hired me to make a couple, and uh, and then the woman re putting together that exhibit just decided like I'm just going to do a general search of instruments in European collections. She finds out though there's this Haitian, this bonza from Haiti. And then the pictures got sent back to various people involved with the exhibit here, and I was like, "All right, I got to plan a trip yeah. to go see, see this thing." And so it was an exhibit, as was the Creole Banya that had been collected in the 1700s mm. from Suriname. So I got to, I had an opportunity to examine both of them yeah. on that trip. Perfect. So, yeah. so we always knew that there was this long history in Suriname of 
the banya of the banjo. Um, but there wasn't really a lot of information of like, well, you know, what's the, what's the, and, and Pete, to be perfectly honest, was a little bit dismissive just because of, they, they have the, and so then I was going to get to that Shlomo Pesco, who, um, has unfortunately passed away. He was doing research in collections that have now been digitized and found that in Berlin, there was an instrument called the Panya, mm. P-A-N-J-A, um, that was also collected in Suriname. And yeah. It, you know, comes to the museum in like the 1850s. We went and examined that one. In Berlin. In Berlin. Two, two and a half years ago. Yeah, two and a half, three years ago. And it's very similar in construction to the Creole Banya, but they differ slightly from... The Haitian Banza, right. the description, a couple of other descriptions. So, so was, he was like, I don't know of how much this Suriname stuff is yeah, really yeah. connected well, to I mean, here, here, my thinking the was, rest like, of I the I want tradition. to know the lineage of what ended up being our banjo we play in the U.S. today. Right. These two, they're clearly part of a new world tradition that's no longer the African one, but they didn't structurally resemble the instruments in North America. So I was like, these are really interesting, but I think it's a separate lineage. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't quite as excited. I took all my measurements and did all that stuff. Yeah. Just because, like, I may never have another opportunity to do this. Yeah. But yeah, that's what that's when Christina says dismissive. I was like, well, this is a side. This is a this is a, a side note. Yeah. Right? Um, but then what we discovered in Amsterdam was a, a diorama. So we, we uh, knew the history was in Suriname, and we were in the. Main Art Museum, which I can't pronounce. But Rick's, museum. Rick's Museum. And uh, <laughs> and we were like, oh, here's a here's a little exhibit area. We had like the, the announcements are already coming over. You know, twenty guests, minutes. Please leave. We're closing in twenty minutes. Oh no. And we're like, well, what should we do? We don't. Let's not just leave. Like, well, here's a little exhibit on the various area art from the various areas that the Dutch had colonized. So like, let's step in there. Who knows? There could be some banjo thing in there. Yeah. And sure enough, there was a whole area in Suriname. And then, yeah. And so then first first we find a tiny little. A guy standing up against a tree with a tiny little gourd instrument. Yeah, we should say there's a and number of dioramas made in Suriname between 1810 and 1820. 1830. Yeah, yeah, 1810 to 1830, basically. Okay. Um, so there's a tiny little guy holding it, but he's holding it more like a fiddle. Yeah. And so Pete's kind of like, I don't really know. Well, that's like, like, well, there's already plenty of sort of indistinct early images of the banjo now. It's not as exciting to me as it once Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, and then he walks to the next one. I'm imagining you just... It's like you're guarding your heart because you like you like don't <laughs> yeah, want yeah, like, right. to like, get too excited. Get your hopes up. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's like wanna... kind of sweet that you're just like. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't ever want to. I found like... it. It's the missing link. Here it is. I'm like, let's look at this honestly. Mm-hmm. You know? um, I'm, so I'm you super were excited. I mean, basically, I was looking at something else, and you walked up to that one. There image, it is. Like, Here it is. There it is. I'm like, yeah, yeah. sure, who it is. Yeah. You can tell which of us is the excitable one. Um, yeah. So. Then Pete goes to the next one, the next diorama. Next one of these dioramas. They're you know maybe called, like three feet, three feet wide. Maybe no, what is that? Three feet wide. Yeah, something like more or less. Um, there maybe you know, and they're set into the wall, so you can't really tell how deep they are. Um, but they're but maybe they're, ten inches deep. Yeah, they're paper but mache. Perspective, so it looks like a great depth is in them. Yeah, uh-huh. they're um, you know figures that are figures probably are like about as big as your thumb. Maybe two and a half inches tall. Yeah, two and a half to. Depending on the scale, the yeah. Um, and I walked to the next one, which is called S- S- 
say it in Dutch. Slavendans, which Slavendans. is, you know, Slavendans. Dance of the Enslaved, yeah. 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 Um, and that's when I'm like, well, hello, this looks more interesting. And I realized that, what I saw right away was the women, the enslaved women dancing, holding scarves between their hands. And like, this is the same dance move, dance step that's in this circa 1800 painting from South Carolina yeah. that includes a banjo. Yeah. So I was like... So it I, had, you think it has a common... Yeah, and I also, what I what I also knew is like I'd, source. I'd spent so much time with that painting like trying to recreate that banjo and I'd read everything I could about it. I was like... Nobody has a good a idea. A couple kind of weak guesses at yeah. what the nature of the dance is, but nothing, even the whole book that came out on that painting, they're just like, I don't know, it's kind of a dance. It's a dance. <laughs> Here's a bunch of stuff about the white guy that painted it, you know. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. Uh, well, right, exactly. Yeah. And that that troubled me, I, you know, but, but the, so I knew that anything that gave us any more, that could potentially give us any more insight into what's going on yeah. in this painting was something. Yeah. Something worth noting. Yeah. Um, and knowing what the banjo is, you know, being used for is, is kind of the interest. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, and so then we bought a book on it and we open it up. It's in Dutch. I, 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 I read Swedish, English, and German. And so, like, I'm kind of forcing my way through the Dutch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it comes across the word banya, B-A-N-Y-A. Well, I'm like, looking at it, I can't read a damn thing in there. And I'm like, what's this word banya that keeps... Are they talking about the banjo in here? And, and, you're, and you, you're, you're like, let me check this out. And you're like... No, that's the name of the dance. Yeah, so the dance that they're doing is called the banya uh. prey. And so it's uh, a banya dance, and it's a dance for the ancestors. And, like, the other interesting thing is that the the panja instrument in Berlin was noted to be part of a... Quote. A, like in German, they said... Yeah, per, yeah, to, uh, particular to the death song on the Hitori. So it's like also probably part of this. So it's like all of a sudden realizing that the Creole, because in that Creole banya, other instruments that are described are called ansako banya, loango banya. So banya yeah. is not a word that means like necessarily banjo. It has another meaning, and so. I started going down a huge rabbit hole that we don't have time to get into today <laughs> about what is going on in that diorama yeah, and like, how it compares to the South Carolina painting and comparing lots of elements. I mean, they're really the, the two images and he, and the the dioramas were made by um, a Dutch Afro-Surinamese man named Garrett Schuten or however you pronounce that in Dutch, <laughs> um, which the Dutch were very happy to make fun of me about when we were in Suriname. Um, but those, you know, so he had insight into what was going on. Um, yeah, he had access to this culture that, like, white people, when they're writing about these dances, yeah. didn't. Yeah. So but so he has, he, yeah, he has a, a, an amazing amount of detail, as does the South Carolina painting. And comparing those things... And comparing and, you know, contrasting them against other ritual dances in the Caribbean and North America. Um, it was just it provided a lot of insights into possibly what's going on in that South Carolina painting. Right. And but there's a lot more research that still needs to be done. Um on on this topic so we went to Suriname yeah. because I wrote a paper about it yeah. which is available online if people want to find Great. it I'll link, I'll link it yeah. <laughs> okay. um, yeah so it goes into a lot more detail there and um, yeah so 
I submitted the paper to a conference thinking like, hey, it'd be cool to go to Suriname. And so then it got accepted and we went to Suriname to present this paper and got to really investigate some of the cool um, history again of music and dance and um, Afro-Surinamese culture in Suriname uh, that was really insightful and just getting yeah. to talk to other people who have more expertise in, you know, the history of, of Suriname. And so once Christina had that sort of defined by studying the Surinamese material, she then started looking at accounts of the banjo throughout the Americas, yeah. the islands, New Orleans, New York, and although they weren't, they didn't catch all the details that the Surinamese material or the South Carolina painting did, they caught enough parts of it that we realized that they are likely engaging in a related ritual practice that the banjo was at the center of. It's awesome. One of, one of the most interesting things is that these are all... While some of the dances had a more social function, many of them had ritual functions, and the banjo is at the center often of a a ritual dance. Um, and so that's like the whole like calling the spirits with the instrument. Drums are you know very documented as being something that can call spirits in Vodou or other um, Vodun other religions. But I discovered some information where I truly believe that the banjo served as a ritual instrument. Um, so there's a very strong thing of there being a, you know, a, uh, earthly plane and a spiritual plane devil at the crossroads where those intersect is a, is a special place. And rattles in Vodun, which is practiced in Haiti are a circle that's pierced by a stick. And that is symbolic of this earthly plane intersecting with a spiritual plane. One of the things that Pete could never be able to figure out was why New World instruments... The New World banjos. The New World banjos have such... They have uh, poor string action. Yeah, they have a high action. Okay, we'll, we'll talk just about the banjo. Yeah. Like in the old... In the banjo related instruments from West Africa... The neck sits on the same plane as the drum, top of the drum head on which the breath, the bridge rests. Yeah. So, even without neck angle or anything, the strings are pretty close to the neck. Yeah. All the ones I've examined from the New World from the 18th and early 19th century, the neck is like way below the level of the head where the bridge, the bridge rests. Yeah. So you inevitably, they're like impossible to play above just the nut. It's like why did they make a choice? to make these harder to play. And I realized it's because of a the spiritualism connected to this ritual that the banjo was in, you had to have the neck bisect the center of the gourd because it becomes another conjure device. So in, in Vodun with the rattles, and the rattles are very much the same construction in Suriname and in other places in um, the Caribbean, it's a circle, it's pierced... Through its center. Through its center. That's the, you know, heavenly plane, earthly plane. And basically the banjos that are New World constructions are constructed in exactly the same manner. And then to add to that, if people read Laurent Dubois' book, 
the banjo, America's African Instrument. You'll also, you know, learn more about how the symbols, like the sound holes in these banjos are crosses, and that is also that same intersection of the earthly and spiritual plane. So the fact that they're on the instrument and that the instruments are constructed in that way, you know, just for me furthers the the message that the, you know, in addition to all of this dance information that I've, you know, found, but that these are really, um, it's another device. It's a, it's a, another conjuring device, basically. Yeah. The yeah. early banjo in the Americas was a, a conjuring device. So this is like a, a totally new concept to me that like, uh, people talk about the banjo as being an African American instrument, meaning North America, <laughs> meaning right. the USA, USA, but now you're talking about it being an African America's, Exactly. Instrument, and I've never heard that before, and that's totally blowing my mind. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. It's just the only place it sort of survived was in right. North America, and that's. But in in Suriname, they still do they still the the banya, dance. the banya dances. They right. still put those on. Did you get to see? Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. Just yeah. a group we went to their rehearsals. Were they dancing with scarves, or am yeah. I getting yeah. scarves yeah. between the two hands, yeah. just like the painting from South Carolina? Yeah. So people do know what that dance looks like because it's the same as yeah it's yeah gotten more and more complicated uh huh and like. there's specific roles and and it's and it's transformed into a more social dance um, but you know there's still um, again this gets really complicated into the uh, this traditional religion in in Suriname is known as Winti and that you know we were talking to one woman. And she was like, well, some people think that if you go to where, you know, if you go to this organization that was putting on the banya, like, they're going to teach you Winti, which is, you know, kind of, I mean, it's the same way that people think of, like, voodoo or Vodun as being witchcraft. Right, right. Um, so they're like, oh, you go there and you're going to, like, learn witchcraft, which is, you know. It's just a religious practice. We're yeah. too used to it being in movies as, like, right, it's right, black right, magic. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, um so yeah, they're still doing it and they're still learning it, and there's been, I think, a little it's bit a of a, they're proud of now. Yeah, a resurgence in that um, dance yeah. practice. So that's pretty cool. So we're trying to we're trying to the that dance group is going to Ohio next year. What? Yeah. yeah. Um, when? I think in January is what Daryl said. We, but, we were in touch with him. So yeah. So, but we're trying to like maybe get him over here to the East Coast to do something with. We've been um, talking with Greg at the Smithsonian. Yeah. yeah. We, get, we have no idea yet, but it's yeah. just the beginning talking about yeah, it. Yeah, trying to, trying to get them over here and connect with some people, some friends of ours in this area. So, yeah. 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 Um, if you direct people to her paper... I will, yeah. I mean, it's great, because there's a chart that breaks down all these elements and how where they appear in material from Suriname to New York to the islands to New Orleans. Yeah. Like, here they... And we didn't get into, like, one of the things that they don't do in Banya anymore is they don't do the election of a king. And that's clearly evident in the painting, in the dioramas, in the New York rituals of Kingster, in the Yonkanu, Yonkanu, however you say it, in the islands. At that point, they elected a king amongst all of the, all the enslaved people. You know, they got a week off around Christmas, and they would, do, they would, they would spend the week doing this ritual. You know, and I, that stuff's so interesting. I mean, I like it just like it's not all about the banjo. It's sort of like it's like fleshing out the American landscape yeah. in those times. And like, uh, you know, one of the real pleasures of this history is like so much of the stuff that seems so obscure now is like it's been hidden in plain sight. And it's like this was something that you travel back to 1820. Fucking everybody knew it. 
they knew it so well they didn't really bother to document it. Yeah. You know, and but you only get little mentions in passing. And I don't know, I just love doing that that kind of research. And I think it's so interesting. I think other people find it interesting too. Yeah. Um, I don't know really what song to play. We can do like we so we talk about minstrel era technique. Um, I'll make another video if you So I'll, I'll do some like basic like I'll do the one that's like this is a show piece around 1850s, early 1860s. Wait, is there a name for that one? Part of it's called Hard Times, but it, some of it's called Green Corn. It, it's, I've probably sort of hybridized a bunch of versions from different songbooks from that banjo premise from that period. And it has the stuff where the, the thumb falls on a weird beat, there's like sort of weird time here and there. Now, is that, is that tune, well, what I really want to ask you about is like wh how this banjo is made, because you made this banjo. Right, this is another one yeah. I made. Um, I always get nervous around like minstrel music, because like the, right now we're as a community deciding like what's okay, okay or, not, or not. You know, yeah. Like, well, we can talk about that too. Yeah, sure. But um, first, talk about this instrument, because I mean, it's. Well, can you ask me a more specific question? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> How's it made? I mean, it's yeah, a banjo. Yeah. It's right, a wooden right, right. rim. For for the people, you know? so just like for the people at home who are like not looking at you playing this, like so what, what you would you look at it and you would see a banjo. So sure. like the gourd banjo I just played, right. like Joe on the street who is not interested in old time music may not recognize it as a banjo. The gourd one, this one they would, because yeah. you have that big round white circle. That's the drum head. Is this? Is it just my my head messing with me, or is this not a perfect circle? It may not be. It like looks slightly ovular. Um, it's not. A, I mean, here, here's the thing. So early banjos, there's only one ply of mm. like quarter inch thick wood. Right. So when I put this on the lathe, there was a low spot on it. it yeah. Just, there's not the endless rims to reinforce each other. One versions of banjos like this that are actually 170, 160 years old, they're almost never still round anymore. Interesting. The tension of the head pulls it out around. This one's pretty close. You might right. be sensing the one sort of flat spot on it. That's huh. I can tell you. Cool. Um, but it's big. It's a big 12-inch pod. Yeah. The rim is like a quarter-inch thick, curly maple throughout, like a, a far fewer um, hooks, nuts, brackets. Although, like, I added, like, what have I got on here? 14. Like, some of the ones from this period would have, like, six. Yeah. But I was trying <laughs> to make a more effective. Sure, experiment. sure. So I, it's not unheard of for there to be this many. But first, I was going to like, I'm going to do, like, 10. And you know, I, uh, you know, I work with Kevin Enoch, and he's like, uh, I don't know, man, that, that may not do the job. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 so yeah, yeah. I'm like, all right, let's bring up the for like fourteen, you know. Right. So just you know, I guess with... because I'm like so ignorant about how banjos are made. Like, what is my mine has a stupid amount, like thirty or something. Like, what does the what do the brackets do? Like, the the brackets 
um, tighten the drum head. They tighten the drum head. So if you have a loose drum head, what are you supposed to do to tighten it? (laughs) You tighten the brackets. The brackets to tighten (laughs) it. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it's an inside joke, and somebody out there knows what we're talking about. Okay, go (laughs) wait a minute. We'll let him feel bad all by his lonesome calling him out. Um, um, So the brackets tighten the head, so you get enough tension, so the head, the it affects the tone ultimately. Like, yeah. So, um, if you don't have a lot of brackets, you can't maybe get you can't get the head as tight. So yeah. throughout the 19th century, they added brackets and they did things to make the banjo brighter and brighter. Yeah. So like this is this is kind of bright. It's also lower than modern pitch, um, but it's not as bright as. A modern banjo. Even if you, know, I put lighter strings on here and took it up to right. to G. It still wouldn't have as much attack, and, that, and some of that is because like there's less mass in the rim. There's not a big hunk of metal sitting under the rim. There's there are fewer brackets. They adding more and more brackets is one of the things they did to increase the brightness and projection of the instrument over time. And then they were also like they weren't. When did they start using steel strings? I don't even. Well, in, in England, I think they started a little before us, like in the late 19th century. Um, I think they people start seeing them for sale in the states, like in the early 20th yeah. century. I'm not I'm not an authority on this, so right. maybe might call me out on that. But yeah. Um, and I don't know. Some of the things are just aesthetic differences. You know, so it hasn't taken that sort of 1890s form that we think of when we see a band sure. today with ebony sure. on it and the sort of fiddle-shaped peg head. Um, the fifth string configuration is a little different. I just picked one of many options they had in those days. And I should say, like, so I added more brackets to this one, put frets on it, which weren't unheard of in 1850, but they weren't usually. Yeah, this is a commission. He wanted a fretted banjo. Yeah. Um, these pegs are actually geared. They just look like fiddle pegs. Oh, very good. Yeah. Very sneaky. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I can keep the aesthetic pretty consistent. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. So this is like, you know, we only have like one more tune that we're going to do. So this is usually when I like, you know, ask, you know, where do people like find your stuff? So like, how do, how do people get your banjos? Uh, banjopete.com. Banjopete. Perfect. Yeah. And yeah. Banjopete on Instagram. That's, you know, it's a lot easier, more easy to keep current. Yeah. Yeah. There's such a great uh, banjo maker community on, yeah. on Instagram. I yeah. love it. Yeah. 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 It's cool. It's yeah. cool. And then, um... I guess I'll I'll link uh, your your article. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what is the name of it? It's called Playing Banya, and then it's got like a good like, uh, like secondary a- because that was one of the interesting things about when when they do the Banya dance. It's not you're not doing a dance. You're it's called playing Banya. Yeah. When you're putting on the dance. Sure. Um, and so then all of a sudden we had this like image of like, oh my gosh, what if these accounts where people say that they're like playing banger or playing banya or playing banjo. Not talking about playing the instrument. Yeah, they're not talking about playing the instrument. They're talking about this whole ritual. Is there anything else you guys want to mention before we play our last tune? No, I don't think so. All right. Thanks you guys so much for giving part of your Sunday morning and, yeah, playing tunes We apologize. Sorry for the domestic (laughs) dispute and...
Christina's article, Playing Banya, The Evidence and Legacy of Shared Cultural Practice. I linked it in the show notes and this episode's Facebook post. You can check out more of Christina's writing at christinagaddy.com and follow her on Instagram. Her handle is at kgads or at k-g-a-d-z. You can check out Pete's custom banjo-making business at banjopete.com and follow him on Instagram, too. He's at banjopete. And both Christina and Pete would love to see you at the banjo gathering this November. I also link that if you want more info. If you want to support Get Up in the Cool, thanks. Visit getupinthecool.com and click the button that says Patreon. Then choose a support level that works for you and get its corresponding reward. Throw in a little and I'll give you an on-air shout-out. Throw in a little more and you can get access to the bonus track blog where I post the extra tune that my guests and I play for each episode, including this one. At higher levels of support, you could join me for a monthly online banjo workshop or download the whole Get Up In The Cool tune archive featuring every tune and song ever played on the show, including the bonus tracks, tagged and separated from the dialogue for your listening convenience. Shoutouts to Adam Gulliford, Get Up In The Cool's newest Patreon supporter, and Adam Silverman for raising his pledge. Making this podcast is my job now, so I really, really appreciate and really need your generosity thank you so much i also offer all those rewards in bulk at a discount just go to getupinthecool.com and click the link that says store where you can also purchase a telegram if you'd like me to read a message on air for another listener of the show or promote your business festival or crowdfunding campaign i plan to use the money from the store to buy some new microphones for the show and i'm pretty close so sign up if you want get up in the cool to sound even better Thanks to Craig Evans for buying access to the bonus tracks for one year, getting us very, very close to our goal. You can find my other show, Think Outside the Box Set, wherever you like to get your podcasts. And you can purchase Get Up in the Cool, Volumes 1 and 2, the best of 2016 and 17 albums, by going to my website, getupinthecool.com, and clicking the album link. While you're there, hit me up on the contact form for Skype banjo lessons or to book me for your square dance, music festival, or camp, or, you know, just to say hi. Everything I mentioned in this outro is linked in the app you're using to listen to this, my website, getupinthecool.com, and Get Up In The Cool's Facebook page and group, which you should like, follow, and join. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening, friends. Come back same time next week to Get Up In The Cool. <laughs>